my microphone, Keith. So, uh, man, it is a glorious day. Anytime that we get to see baptism, anytime that we get to see life change happen here at Crossroads Church, man, what a glorious day that is. Uh, we love to see the way that Jesus is working in and through uh, us as believers. And, you know, part of our vision here at Crossroads Church is to make disciples of the next generation, our kids and our grandkids. And what we just got to witness today uh, was that with Andrea, a longtime leader here at Crossroads, baptizing her daughter, Hannah. And can we just give it up for Hannah one more time? Um, Man, what a great... See a second grader get baptized, man, so, so much fun. If you're here today and you are a believer and you haven't been baptized, uh, let me just take a moment just to encourage you to do that. We make it really easy here uh, at Crossroads to step into the waters of baptism. Uh, we have a text line that you'll see a couple of times uh, today. Uh, Grant mentioned it earlier. It's 720-513-1933. And you can just text the word next to that, and we will walk with you uh, through the whole process of baptism to uh, you sharing your story, to getting baptized on this stage. And so if you were wanting to do that, uh, we're ready to walk with you through that, all right? Well, my name is Matt Manning, and I am the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. And I want to welcome those of you uh, joining us up at Fort Lupton. It's been a couple of weeks since you've been with us. Uh, pastor Alex has been up there doing uh, our last series, taking all that on. A uh, quick little Fort Lupton story, kind of fun. Uh, yesterday, I did a wedding. Uh, last night, I did a wedding for a couple. And uh, I was sitting at the reception, and the grandmother of the bride actually sat next to me. And she she was the organ player for 18 years at Fort Lupton. Before it was Fort Lupton, it was called First Baptist. She played the organ for 18 years, and I just thought, man, what a small, small world. And so anyways, that was kind of a fun story. If you know her up there, her name is Shirley. And then uh, on top of that, uh, I want to also welcome those of you joining us online as well as here at Thornton. And if you are new with us, man, we are so welcome uh, that you are here today, so grateful that you are here today. Uh, we are all about lifting the name of Jesus. We want to see Jesus' name lifted high and above all all things. And so our worship today, whether that be in our preaching or in our song or through baptism, uh, is all about making the name of Jesus known. Well, we are starting a brand new series today. And the series that we're starting today is called When Life Gives You Lemons. The old saying goes, when life gives you lemons, you what? Yeah, you make lemonade. Uh, the first time that kind of came into our social consciousness was in 1915. Um, a Christian who was a little bit like, woo, 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 out there. Uh, but anyways, he made this proverb, and he was writing it actually about a friend who had overcome, like, a lot of hardship in his life. And he had met most of the hardship in his life with this joy that just kind of pressed him forward in his life. Uh, that's really where the beginning of that saying came from. And so today, as we start this series, we just thought that it was such an apt title, When Life gives you lemons because we are starting this series on joy. Now, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but joy kind of leaks, doesn't it? Like at one point, some points in our life, we feel like, you know, we're at the top of the world. We're standing at top of Long's Peak, you know, and all the world is beneath our feet. And then, you know, like just moments later, it can feel like we're swimming or even drowning in the pits of despair. That vision, or uh, when it comes to joy, joy leaks. And we have this tendency in our lives to, to think of joy as like water, you know, carrying around in a bucket. And we carry this bucket of water around, only it's a holy bucket, not like holy God is holy, but holy, like full of holes. You know, and as we walk around, you know, water's just kind of spilling out and we do our best to manipulate it. And maybe for a season we can hold on to some of it, but then life happens. And eventually just all of our joy just kind of spills out everywhere. That's the way that most of us think about joy. 
And yet, when we open the Bible and we start reading some scriptures from the Bible, we start to think to ourselves that maybe the way that we understand joy isn't the way that the Bible understands joy, that the way that we understand joy seems different than the way that the Bible understands joy. Because time and time again, we come across verses like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where it says this, we're told to be joyful. And not only be joyful, but to be joyful always. Like this is command language. This is like make it happen kind of language. And all throughout the scripture we see these, these phrases like these, these commands that we are to be joyful. And when we look at the commands like this in the scriptures, unfortunately what, what many of us do is go, well that's impossible. Like, if joy comes into my life, then man, that's good and that's a blessing. But, but you know, life just kind of happens. And, and so most of my life, I'm not going to probably live with joy. And so we treat these joy commands like more like suggestions. That if I get it, great, but let's be real, life is hard. I can't always have joy. And so we sum up the Bible, unfortunately, again, for most of us, when we read the Bible like that, unfortunately, what comes to mind is that, you know what, the Bible isn't really relevant for real life. Like it doesn't make a difference in my, in my real life. And so we, we look at joy and we just think of it as, as a mere suggestion rather than something that can actually be true of us. But then we read the scriptures a little bit deeper and we come across this guy named Paul. And Paul not only believes that you can live a life with joy, but he seems to be able to live his life in this continual perpetual state of joy. And then he goes a step further and seems to want us to live that way too. Which what makes the book of Philippians such an amazing little letter. That the book of Philippians is Paul's manifesto when it comes to joy. I mean, throughout the letter, he says things like this, that I pray always with joy. I rejoice. Rejoice with me. Be glad. Rejoice with me. Again, I say rejoice. I mean, it is this whole book. On and on it goes. Four chapters of the world joy just dripping off the pages in various forms and in various ways. And it makes us wonder, doesn't it? Like, how did Paul do it? Like, how did Paul pull off this life of perpetual joy in his life? How did he live with joy always? Like, was he just, like, in constant denial of what was going on in his life? Or did he know something that maybe we don't? Because for many of us who know Paul's story, it wasn't all rainbows and kittens. In fact, if you know Paul's story, there was very little rainbows and very little kittens in his story at all, right? Like, his life was not easy. That every day there was a threat, every day there was danger, every day there was pain. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he sums up his life like this. This is how he starts it. It's really great. He says, I sound like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, far uh, imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. See, what the ancient world figured out is if that you lash somebody 40 times, you'll kill them. So they would do 39 lashes. Paul experienced that five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's not Colorado stoned. That's people throwing rocks at you, okay? And then three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's this daily pressure, he says, on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. That we look at this and none of us, there ain't a single person here who goes, let's <laughs> sign me up for that life. If that's what life in Jesus looks like, I'm in. Like none of us would say that. 
And then on top of that, we know that Paul had this physical ailment that tormented him every day of his life, and his life actually ends by being beheaded by the Roman emperor Nero. That you can say a lot of things about Paul's life. A charmed life was not one of them. And we all wonder the same thing when we read Paul's life, when we read his story, we all wonder the same thing. Like, what was his secret to joy? How did he do it? Well, that's what these next five weeks are going to be about, that we're going to discover together by using Philippians as our guide. And what we're going to discover is this, is that when it comes to joy, that joy is the deep confidence. It's the deep confidence that we have, regardless of your circumstances in life, that all is well between you and God. That joy is this deep, deep confidence, regardless of our circumstances, that knows that all is well between me and God. So if you have your Bibles, I want us to go ahead and we're going to dive into this. So you can turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be. And as we turn there, I want to give you a little encouragement throughout this series. That this series on joy is going to be five weeks long. And my encouragement is for you every day to read through the book of Philippians. Now you might be thinking to yourself, that is a huge task. Well, let me tell you that you can read it in about 20 minutes. Actually, less than 20, uh, 20 minutes. That the total letter is only 104 verses. And of those 104 verses, 19 of them are about joy are about joy that my encouragement is for you to start every day with Philippians and if you do at the end of these five weeks you know you're going to know this book I mean how couldn't you have, would have read Philippians 40 times but I promise you you will enjoy it and most importantly you will understand what it looks like to live a life of joy so Paul begins his letter like this to the Philippians he writes in Philippians chapter 1 starting in verse 1 Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all of my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are making my prayer with joy. Four verses in, and we stumble across our word, the word joy. So here's what's going on here. Paul is writing this letter, and he's writing it alongside his buddy, buddy Timothy. Timothy has visited him from Ephesus to Rome, where Paul is at. That Rome is currently, or Paul is currently in Rome, in prison. And he sits down, and he begins to write this letter to this little church in the Roman city of Philippi. Now, the way that this church began was quite remarkable, quite dramatic. That for most of us, we know that the Apostle Paul was this, like, traveling missionary. They would go to city and to city. And when he walked into city, he would go either to the synagogues or to the public square or to the amphitheaters, and he would begin to preach Jesus. He would begin to preach the gospel of Jesus. And so his journey takes him to the city of Philippi, which was this like renowned city in the Roman Empire. And he walks into the city square and he begins to preach. And as he's preaching, God opens the heart of this woman named Lydia. And soon Lydia is trusting Jesus as her savior. And so are some of her uh, other friends. Some of these other women that are with her believe uh, in Jesus. Paul, day after day, continues to go into the city square and preach. And as he goes into the city square, he meets this young, demon-possessed woman who has the spirit of divination, which just simply means that she was a fortune teller. And apparently, her slave owners were making a killing off of her abilities uh, as a fortune teller. And so day after day, Paul is going to the city square, and he's preaching the good news of Jesus. He's preaching the gospel of Jesus. And every day, this demon-possessed woman shows up and starts interrupting him. And after like a week, he's like, enough is enough. He goes over, he lays hands on her, he prays for her, and all of a sudden, she is liberated from this demonic spirit. 
And in the joy and the celebration of this woman experiencing freedom from this demon, her slave masters are also like infuriated. Because again, they were making a killing and now no longer are they making any money off of this girl. And so they start this riot. Paul is beaten, eventually imprisoned arrested and imprisoned, and while he's in jail, he's singing songs and he's praying, and the Philippian jailers, they're like listening to him do this as he's sitting in prison. Then at midnight, that midnight, this like end of days earthquake happens that rattles all of Philippi, and the Philippian jailer looks at Paul as he's singing and praying throughout all of this and goes, whatever you got, I need. Like, give me some of that Jesus. And so Paul leads the Philippian jailer and all of his household to Jesus. And so you have Lydia and her friends, you have this demon-possessed girl, this formerly demon-possessed girl, the jailer in her household. Like, out in the aftermath of all of this, spontaneously, they start this church and they ask Paul to be its pastor. And out of this dramatic beginning, it produced some real affection in Paul towards this little church. And so Paul finds himself in prison again, not in Philippi, but this time in Rome. And he's writing this letter to this little church that he loves. And in his prayer, we see such gratitude. And in this prayer, he reveals to us his joyful spirit. Now, what's so unusual about this is that when, it lo- when we look at Paul's situation and his current like, life here in this moment, there appeared no reason for him to be rejoicing at all. Like he was a Roman prisoner. And his defense was not going well. In fact, as he continues to plea his case, it just continues to go worse for him. And maybe there's like a little glimmer of hope that Paul might get acquitted all this, but more likely than anything is that he will be found guilty and that ultimately he'll be beheaded. See, Paul was a Roman citizen, which meant that he could not be crucified. It was against the law to crucify Roman citizens. So instead, what they did is if you were going to be executed with that privilege of being a Roman citizen, that you would be decapitated, that you would be beheaded. And so Paul is here, and he's this Roman citizen, and he's a prisoner living in this rented house, and he's tied 24 hours a day, 24-7. He's he's chained to a Roman guard. He's chained to a Roman guard and not allowed to leave. Now, the crazy thing about this is that for all of Paul's life, his dream was to go to Rome. It was to make it to the grand city of Rome to preach Jesus. Jesus. That Rome was the most important city in the empire, that this imperial city boasted a million people, that for Paul to enter into to Rome, where Rome was like the showcase of power for the ancient world, to penetrate Rome with the gospel of Jesus would send a ripple effect across the empire and across the known worlds. That it was Paul's dream to enter into Rome and to preach in the amphitheaters and and into the public squares, the gospel of Jesus. And instead he arrives in chains and in prison, arrested in Jerusalem because of his faith, sent to Rome to stand trial before Caesar. He would probably, where he would probably face certain death, the death penalty. And despite these difficult circumstances, these dangers, these, these discomforts at a level that few of us have ever experienced in our lives, that Paul overflowed with joy. And as odd as that sounds to us, we have to realize, and for some of you this is going to seem like a surprise, but we have to realize that the defining mark of a believer in Jesus is joy. Like the defining mark of a Christian is our joy. To which you might be sitting right now going, Matt, no, 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 no. Like the defining mark of a Christian is righteousness. Or the defining mark of a Christian is holiness. Or, or maybe service or humility. 
Like, that's the defining mark, maybe you would say. See, for most of us, when it comes to the idea of joy, that we tend to think, like we've talked about, that joy is optional, is icing on a cake. And maybe you would even say that I see some Christians who walk around with joy, and I wish that I could be one of the handful who do, but that's not really for me. Like, hear me on this. The truth is this, is that in Jesus, in Jesus, we never have to be without genuine joy. That in Jesus, we never have to be without genuine joy, which creates a tension in us because of how often we lose our sense of joy, doesn't it? Like the joy that God throughout the scriptures commands his people to have, we so easily lose. And I know that as we begin to talk about this today, that there's something totally counterintuitive about this in the way that we think in the world. For example, Amy Bloom wrote an essay all the way back in 2010 for the New York Times titled The Rap on Happiness. At the very end, she wrote these words, and I think it sums up our culture's way of thinking about joy and happiness uh, pretty well. She says this, that the real problem with happiness is neither its pursuers nor their books. It's happiness itself. Happiness is like beauty. Part of that glory lies in its transient. That just means fleeting is all that word means. So part of its glory is in its fleeting. It's deep but often brief. Much greater prose and poetry make note of this. Frank Kermode wrote, It seems there is a sort of calamity built into the texture of life. To hold happiness is to hold the understanding that the world passes away from us, that the petals fall and the beloved dies, that no amount of mockery, no amount of fashionable scowling will keep any of us from knowing and savoring the pleasures of the sun on our faces or save us from the adult understanding that it cannot last forever. What she's saying is this is that if you really want serenity in your life, don't pursue happiness. Because anything that you get from joy will not last. No matter what it is, it will disappoint you every single time. That her takeaway is that the only way to get peace in our life, the only way to get serenity in our life, is to not pursue happiness, is to not pursue joy. Let me make this a little bit more concrete for you. Uh, her way of thinking, the world's way of thinking. Um, if you're a Rockies fan, despite what happened last night, you'll understand this, all right? So when it comes to the Rockies, the Rockies moved to town when I was 11 years old, all right? And um, everything in my like growing up years was the Rockies. Like my joy was the Rockies. But let's be real. It's been 30 years in counting. And there have been some high moments like 2007, but most of the time it just leads in heartbreak. And at some point in my life I said, never again. Like never again when I'm going to allow the, the players in purple, like, you know, just, just disappoint me. Like I will attend games and when I do I'm going to have fun. Like maybe one or two times a year I'll watch it on TV. But other than that I have completely detached. That I have prepared myself for the Rockies to disappoint me always. Like Charlie Blackman who? Like, you know, that's, that's what's going on. And for some of you, sports teams are still breaking your heart. But for others of you, it's men, it's a man or it's a woman, it's a love, it's career, it's wealth, it's fame, it's success. And what happens is, is because our hearts want joy, they're like these big vacuums that are just sucking. And they're always looking for what will make me happy, what will bring joy into my life. And ultimately we know, we know that it will not last. So eventually the world and even some of the major religions like Buddhism say and teach that the only way to get peace is to stop pursuing joy. 
Don't give yourself to anything that can break your hearts. That that's the only way that you can experience peace in this world. And yet here's a problem with that philosophy, isn't there? The problem is, is that when we give up joy, it actually dehumanizes us. That it hardens us. See, part of the problem is that the world believes that joy is getting our circumstances in the right places. That joy is, is when everything falls favorably for me. That when, when my circumstances are right, then life is good. But the problem is, is that for most people in most of history and most parts of the world, their circumstances have not been favorable. And the question then becomes this, like, like are they destined to a life without joy? Are they destined to live a life without happiness? And the sad answer to that question, at least worldly speaking, is yes. If you define joy the way that the world defines joy, then the answer has to be yes. And yet here we open up the book of Philippians and Paul is sitting in prison and he's saying, what if I told you that you could have lasting joy that's actually available to everyone? And what if I told you that you could have this joy and that it would not be based on your circumstances but on something else entirely different? See, he writes for us in verse 5 these words. He says, because of your partnership, again to the Philippians, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, when it comes to our joy, what Paul is communicating is that true joy is not dependent on our earthly circumstances, but that true joy is dependent upon our unchanging relationship with Jesus. And that verse 6 is the key here. That I'm sure of this, Paul says, that, that my confidence is, is in this, that what God started, that God will finish. This is one of those verses that lands on like the all-time hits, you know, greatest hits album for us. See, your joy is not an attitude dependent upon your circumstances, but it is the deep, deep confidence that regardless of your circumstances, that you and God are good, that you and God are good. No matter the difficulty, the pain, the discomfort, the failure, the rejection, the other challenges that you face in this world, genuine joy remains because your eternal well-being is secured in God's grace. That's what this verse means. Paul says that when God opens your hearts and you experience the gospel of Jesus, that God began a good work in you that is amazing, that he began something in you that is just amazing. And what God begins, Paul is convinced to his toes that God will finish. What he's talking about here is our salvation. See, when it comes to our salvation, our salvation is not a matter of us working for God's acceptance, but rather it is God working for us and in us. That none of us can work our way into the favor of God. That we cannot work our way into the favor of God, nor can we maintain God's favor by what we do. That God already did it all for us. That God already did the work for us at the cross of Jesus. And then he goes about blowing our minds by actually taking that work and applying it to us by the Spirit so that he can work in and through us. That you have to get this because this is the source of our joy. That your salvation is not by human achievements. Your salvation is not by what you do. That your salvation is by the divine accomplishment through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. From the beginning to end of your salvation, from the beginning and end to, of my salvation, it is entirely a divine work of grace. 
And you can be absolutely sure that if God has started a work in you, that he will see it through to its completion. And if you're here today and you're a believer, then heaven is as real to you as if you've been living there already 10 million years. God finishes what he starts. See, the supernatural joy is ultimately what is feeding Paul's spirit as he sits imprisoned in Rome, praying for his friends in Philippi. And as we read these words, we see that he's not self-absorbed. Like there's no like morbid spirit here. In fact, reading these words, you would never assume, unless I had told you, that Paul was sitting in prison. In fact, these words seem more, you know, more at home, like, you know, at a backyard barbecue with a brat in one hand and a white rascal in the other. Like, like nobody reads these words and assumes that Paul is sitting next to a soldier chained to him. But such joy is an attitude that only the Spirit of God can produce. That joy is the evidence that God's grace is in you so deep that there's this bubbling of gladness from your souls, knowing that all is well with you and Jesus. That joy runs deeper than your circumstances. It goes far beyond the good things in your life, and it goes way beyond the negative things in our lives, that it's built on the absolute confidence that what God began in us, that God will finish until he carries you home. It's why Paul could look at his imprisonment as a gift of grace. And then in verse 12, Paul writes these words. He says, Philippians, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. There's no self-pity here. <laughs> Verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. These are Caesar's boys. These are the mean dudes. These are the, the mean green fighting machines. And nobody messed with these guys. These were the killers. And Paul says the gospel is making a difference in their lives. And to all the rest that are imprisoned with me, that, that all the other people that are sitting here with me, they're, they're hearing the gospel of Jesus. This isn't self-pity. This is God opening an opportunity. And most of all, he says, the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That we know this, that when we start living lives with joy, when you see joy in others, it's infectious, isn't it? And Paul says, look, you can, you can see it. That as I live my life in joy and in prison, that others around me, that they're becoming emboldened for their faith, that it's infectious in this world. That we know this. Intuitively, we know this. In our modern times, this is probably no more true than a man named Blessing Ofer. He's one of those guys. Blessing is a guy who understands the type of joy that we're talking about and also pairs it with the deep, you know, pain and hurt and discomfort of this world. If um, you might recognize Blessing Ofer's name uh, from NBC's The Voice, you might have seen him on there if you're a Voice fan, or if you've been to a Chris Tomlin concert, he's been touring with him lately. But if you don't know Blessing's story, it goes a little bit like this, that he was born in Nigeria, and when he was born, he was born with a continual uh, disease, glaucoma, in his left eye that basically made his left eye completely blind. And at the age six, his parents made the gut-wrenching decision to uh, send him to America with an uncle so that he could go to Yale Medical Center and have his left eye operated on. And from ages 6 to 10, he had many, many operations. Very few of them actually helped him at all. And then at age 10, while he's playing in the backyard with some friends or playing with water guns, this unfortunate freak event happens where a stream of water hits him in a very vulnerable part of his right eye and basically makes him completely blind for the rest of his life. And yet, if you've ever heard Blessing speak, you'll immediately wish that you had his perspective. 
Like there's this intangible quality of just pure and raw joy that he lives his life with, the kind of joy that Paul believes all of us can have. In fact, one of the songs that he, that he wrote has become a hit both in secular and in Christian radio. It's called Brighter Days, and the lyrics go like this. Ashes fall from burning dreams. Never live through times like these. If you're har- trying hard to breathe in the dark, If your screams don't make a sound, if your walls are crashing down, if your heart just cries too loud all the time, I know there's going to be some brighter days. I swear that love will find you in your pain. I feel it in me like the beating of life in my veins. I know there's going to be some brighter days. I know that there's going to be some brighter days. After he wrote that song, a reporter came to him and had some questions about the song. And the question that he asked is, how can you reconcile your life with that song? How can you reconcile your faith to the blindness that you have? And Blessing's response was this. Is God only good when things are awesome? Because surely the answer cannot be yes to that question. God is good all the time. See, Blessing gets that our joy is not rooted in the circumstances of this world. That in the love of Jesus, that brighter days are ahead of us because our eternity awaits. What God began, he will finish. That's our hope. That's our joy. And if you have only ever experienced the fleeting joy that this world has to offer, I want to invite you into something so much deeper. That your joy can be rooted in a hope that is beyond this world. That Jesus came and he died on the cross for our sins so that you might experience the grace of God that changes not only our eternity but also are here and now, the world in which we live in now. Trust Jesus. Enter into the everlasting joy that he gives to us. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we come to uh, your word. And Lord, when we're confronted with the joy of our lives, Lord, in the times that we live in right now, Lord, it feels like our joy, our happiness is so fleeting. That at one moment we can, we can be at the top of the world and on the next moment it feels like we're, we're drowning in despair. And so Lord, I pray, I pray, Lord, that we would be able to experience the joy that you speak of. Lord, that no matter what happens in this life, no matter what circumstances come, no matter what hand we are dealt, that we can know that we are good because you are good with us. That your work on the cross covered all of our sins that your righteousness and holiness was given to us, that we have nothing to fear because you are with us. And so, Lord, as believers, we know that there are brighter days ahead of us because of the love that we have and share with you, that our hope is not just in eternity but in the here and now, that knowing that we can walk through life and that we can trust in you, knowing that you are not just good during the good times but that you are good all the time. And so, Father, I pray for those in this room. Lord, I pray for believers who have maybe lost their sense of joy, that the world has beaten in on them and and they've lost the joy that they live with. God, I pray that you would return the joy of their salvation to them and that they would know that what you've started in them, this good work that you've started in them, that you will finish it. And, Father, I pray for those who have not maybe yet even experienced your joy for those who you're speaking to the soul of their lives today. God, I pray that as you whisper to their hearts that they would would respond to you, that they would know that, that this type of joy can be theirs, that they can have hope, hope that is everlasting. 
that I don't have to settle for what the world gives to us, that to pursue happiness is a dead end. No, 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 to pursue happiness is to pursue you. And so God, I pray that you would speak to their hearts today. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen. Today we go to communion together realizing that at the cross of Jesus is where our joy is found. That the reason that Paul can even believe that we have an everlasting joy is because of what Jesus accomplished when his body was broken and his blood was spilt. And so today, today we come together and, and we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made by eating the bread. And we drink from the cup the joy of our salvation. If at any point in the next 20 minutes or so, if you need prayer, I'd invite you to make your way over the banner online. You can click the button on the screen. But I'm going to ask you to stand as we sing of the brighter days that we have in Jesus. Mm-hmm.